If you would, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, and I will read verses 28 through 33. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God had promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I love this chapter because it is Paul's fullest sermon that we can find, at least in Acts. And he is facing unbelief in the people of Israel and unbelief with the Gentiles. And he begins actually his sermon in verse 16, and we're going to walk through his presentation of the gospel to the people. So we begin, he goes back to the very beginning. In verse 16, Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. And they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, the man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. So what we see at work at first in these verses is God's grace. This is not human grace. We need to define God's grace as we think about grace. When, when someone says, oh, they're, they're filled with such grace, what we typically mean is some type of mannerism, maybe. Uh, uh, you can even use grace to describe a dance or a charity or charitable acts in some sense. So he had grace on her or something like that. But grace for God is his sovereign, steadfast, sacred, and saving commitment to show compassion, mercy, unending blessing, and love to the undeserving. The last phrase is very important. It's his commitment to show all of those things, all of his goodness to those who do not deserve it. And we see God's grace at work in these verses. God chose our fathers. He drew near to Abraham. Abraham wasn't seeking for God. He wasn't seeking for Yahweh at all. God drew near to him and drew him out of the land of Ur and gave him the land as a possession, even though he sojourned in it all his life. And after all of these events take place, they end up in Egypt. 
God draws them out, brings them out with uplifted arms, showing his grace again, and then he puts up with them, the text explicitly says, in the wilderness for 40 years, God showing grace upon grace upon grace as he leads his people. And then he gives them the land, and it takes 400 years. And he sends them judges. He's pouring out blessing upon blessing, kindness upon kindness on the undeserving. If you're familiar with the Old Testament and the things that happen that the people do as we're waiting for the coming of the Messiah, they're the worst people you can imagine. And they don't like God at many points. And God continues to show them grace and mercy. The plan from beginning to end is for God to display His grace. You exist in God's world. And so, whatever, whether you acknowledge it or not, your whole life is being lived out within a majestic display of God's grace. There's not a different God between the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We don't get harshness and wrath and judgment in the Old Testament and then grace and mercy and compassion in the New Testament. It is the same God. He is patient from the beginning all while preparing the way to the cross. The wheels of history are not random. They're not even trending ultimately towards chaos. It's not just entropy at work in the events of human history. All of it is culminating in and deepening and intensifying God's display of His grace. His grace and His saving purpose did not fail in all of those hundreds, even thousands of years in dealing with the rebellion of Israel and Judah against Him. All of it was building and growing the size and scope of the display of His grace. So that's God's grace at work in creating the people of Israel. And then we pick it up in verse 21 again, and we meet God's king. They asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he has testified and said, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. So on this long road, leading to the ultimate display of God's grace, in Jesus Christ, we meet a king. And this king, David specifically, is more than another just failed attempt at human uh, ability to fix the problem. That venture failed in Saul. The people wanted a king to be like the other nations. That's what they said. God gave them Saul to fulfill their godless desire, and it failed, and God removed him, the text explicitly says. And he showed grace, however, in removing Saul and raising up David. David, the reason why Paul is bringing him in and why it's important, is David functions as a preview of the coming grace of our Messiah He's a conquering and delivering gentle shepherd raised up from obscurity to reign in justice over all God's people. That's David and that's our Messiah. David also functions as a promise or a promise is given to him. The line of David, God promises, will never lack a man on the throne. That's his explicit promise in the scriptures. 
For all eternity, there will be a son of David reigning. And that is, in fact, our Lord Jesus. He sits on the throne of his father David and reigns now from heaven. All authority has been given to him. He also functions as a prophet. We're going to see this in a little bit. He says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. We'll see this as Paul gets to the point of explaining the resurrection and why it was inevitable. David knew that this Holy One that God would send would not be just a normal mortal man. He would not see corruption. And now we encounter God's message. So we have the the preview The prophecy and the promise all at work in King David. And this is on the, again, on the road of God preparing the wheels of human history all to the point of displaying his grace ultimately in the coming of Jesus. And so we see God's message. Verse 24, before his coming, referring to Jesus, before Jesus' coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am unworthy or not worthy to untie. So we have God's message of salvation being preached in or by John. He preached a baptism of repentance, and the message is salvation. You see it in verse 23 of this man's offspring. God has brought to Israel a savior. Something needs saving. And I think we can all acknowledge this, no matter what our background is or what has happened in our lives, something has gone horribly wrong. There's something wrong with the world. You look out and you see everything that's happening. And I think it would have to be a crazy person to say, yeah, all good with me. Something's gone wrong, but here's the deal. It's our fault. The world doesn't need saving so much as we need saving. We're the problem. Our rebellion against God has been the cause of all the rest of the futility and darkness in the world. The hope is that you can be saved. The message isn't just things are horrible and it's our fault The hope is that we can be saved. And God has actually promised to do it. It is Jesus the Savior. It's almost uh, a title, but it's almost His name now because His work is so identical to the work of saving. He's actually promised to do it. So John came preparing the people for salvation. And in John's message, what we see here is a little bit about the majesty of Christ. Jesus even says of John himself, this is the greatest man born of woman, meaning in the natural way. And that man, the greatest man born of woman, says of Jesus, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. I'm not even worthy to function as his servant. He's that great. He's that majestic. This one who is coming, you don't have any idea, people of Israel. He even says, among you stands one that you do not know. They didn't recognize him. They didn't understand all that God was doing in the purpose of Jesus to display his grace, to display his majesty, the son of David who would rule forever. 
not even worthy to untie his sandals. But also you see the humility of Christ. All of that majesty that was his did not stop him from humbling himself. And we see also the grace of Christ. He entered into a situation that would end badly. This is alluded to when, we're, when we look at what Paul says about John. As he was finishing his course, John died because he preached a message of repentance. So Jesus enters and begins his ministry in a context where there's great opposition. He didn't just come as a savior with all the power and all the armies and all the stuff that would have made it easy for him to save that he could have done. He entered into a situation where it would inevitably end badly for him. Just like John. So John prepares the people and to receive this message of salvation, to be ready for the message of salvation, the preparatory place is repentance. Salvation, grace, and repentance are all inseparable in this sense. God shows grace to the undeserving, specifically those who acknowledge that they are undeserving. That's how God's grace works. If you insist that you deserve grace, then you don't believe yourself to be undeserving. And so grace isn't for you. So repentance acknowledges our hopelessness before God. And that's what prepares the people for salvation, a baptism of repentance. He shows grace to everyone, God does, but those who remain stiff-necked and lift themselves up in pride in their heart, judge themselves unworthy of the saving grace of God. And more, we'll talk more on that later. It's like the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee didn't think that he needed grace, or at least not anymore. God had maybe shown grace to him in the beginning, but now he was getting along fine, maybe, and God was making a great return on his investment by showing grace to the Pharisee. I give you all this worship, God. Aren't you proud and happy that you showed grace to me? The tax collector wouldn't even look up at heaven, but beat his chest saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. That one goes down to his house justified. This is how God's grace works and how repentance is related to receiving God's grace. It's not that you earn grace through repenting. It's that you're acknowledging that you actually need grace. So that sets up the promise of God in bringing the Messiah, preparing the people to receive the promise. And then we see, beginning in verse 27, that God actually fulfills his promise. Let me read in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem... And their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. So we see a little bit about Christ's people. That same spirit of rejecting God's grace and insisting that we didn't need it was the very thing that drove the people of Israel into a mad rage and their leaders into murderous intent. 
to the point of begging Rome, their own captors, to kill this man. He was their true king. He was the greater David. Yet because they rejected who he said he was and rejected the idea that they, the people of Israel, needed forgiveness and to repent of their sins, they cried out, we have no king but Caesar. The very guy that they were hoping that their Messiah would come and overthrow, they swear allegiance to him, begging Rome to kill their Messiah. The people of Christ rejecting Christ is not just some random tragedy either. Look at what he says. Fulfilled them, this is in verse 27 at the end, the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. It is all according to God's plan to provide salvation, the salvation that he had promised. It only deepens the display of God's grace. This is exactly how Peter presents the gospel at Pentecost. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he's blaming them intentionally, drawing attention to the fact that you rejected Christ. You were acting in ignorance and fulfilled all the scriptures about him. Do you see how God works? In your rejection of Christ, you fulfilled God's plan to save you. So repent and believe in Jesus and receive salvation. It's not an accident. It's not a random tragedy that Jesus was rejected by his people. They brought on the fulfillment of all of those promises. And it only deepens the display of his grace. We also see Christ's innocence here. Verse 28. And though they found no guilt in him worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. This is a point it seems most people don't argue against, but is it not the most astonishing? The arguments against Christianity seem to orbit around whether or not Jesus existed, or if he rose from death, or if he really died in the way the Bible says, or if he was raised from the dead or not, but I've never seen much serious or scholarly disagreement or opposition to this point, Jesus' innocence. But is that not the most amazing thing about the man? There was no guilt in him. He was perfect. You could take away the walking on the water, the raising people from the dead like Lazarus and turning water into wine, and you still have a sinless man. And the older I get, the more drawn I become to the perfection of Jesus. Yes, the miracles are great and exposing the religious leaders, all his debates are interesting and great and exciting, thrilling. But there is a surprising, irresistible draw that pulls on my affections towards him when I see his meekness, his love, his compassion, his mercy, his grace, his perfect holiness in all of his life. One of the greatest tragedies in the death of Christ is that his days were cut short and we only really get three years with Jesus to see this perfect man living among us. He was perfect. They found no guilt in him. 
They begged for him to be killed. Verse 29. And when they had carried out all that was written of him. See, they weren't overturning God's plan. They were carrying out exactly everything that was written of him. After they did that, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And we are kidding ourselves if we think that we would have been the great exception that we would have remained faithful to Christ if we were in that situation. We would have been like His enemies who hated Him and hated His claims. Or we would have been like His followers who abandoned Him. Or like Judas who betrayed Him. They carried out all that was written of Him. You've got to understand this is no accident that everything happened exactly like it did, down to the details of the Roman soldiers casting lots over his clothing, prophesied hundreds of years beforehand. This is no final or unthinkable or unforeseen sacrifice of the hero at the end of the story that saves the day and everyone is taken off guard. Sometimes directors do that to you. You come to the end of the movie and the guy you thought who was going to win the day, he has to die to save the day. And we're all shocked. That's not what's happening with Jesus. It was the plan from the beginning. There is no surrender on the part of Jesus or the Father or the Spirit, even temporarily, to give the power and the victory over to death and Satan and sin. It was written hundreds of years before it all happened. This is how Peter reflects on it in Acts a little bit earlier. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It took place exactly like God ordained. And remember, this is all part of the definite plan of God to demonstrate the glory of His grace in the person of Christ. His grace begins in drawing near to Abraham and calling out a people. And all of the Old Testament is leading up to the display of God's grace in Jesus. All of the history and prophecies and laws of all of His dealings with His people before Christ came were revealing, hinting at in riddles, revealing in shadows, and pointing to the coming Christ. And then we get to the resurrection. In light of all this, that it was the definite plan of God, you could almost read this verse this way. Verse 30. Instead of, but God raised him from the dead. Greek conjunctions are interesting. They can be either and or but. And you have to determine based on context which one it is. I think it's almost clearly that we should say and. Because it's not a surprise. If you understand what God is doing at work in Jesus to display his grace from before all time as the plan to unfold all of his purposes in creation, to make Christ preeminent in all things, Colossians 1, then of course God raised him from the dead. It is absolutely the case. It is beyond reasonable doubt that God would do such a thing. There is no possible other outcome. 
We'll speak a little bit more of the inevitability of the resurrection here in a little bit. For now, consider this. It was by the power of God. God raised him from the dead. It was God's plan to deliver him up for our sins. And it was God's plan to raise him up. So his resurrection, specifically because it was by the power of God, demonstrates that his work of providing an atonement that would satisfy God's wrath against your sins has actually happened. There is sufficient power in the death of Jesus to forgive all of your sins because Jesus walked out of the tomb alive. If there was any wrath remaining against those who would believe, then Jesus would still be dead. You have forgiveness of everything because he's alive. If you will trust in him. Everything that he said he would do is finished. When we see Jesus talking about the effect of his work, what he's going to accomplish, the fact that he walked out of the tomb alive proves that he did what he said he would do. This is how he speaks of it in John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. He has the authority and the power to do that because God raised him from the dead. He has eternal life in himself and he did it. He offers you that eternal life now. He says, come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. We also need to see, verse 31, that the resurrection of Christ is irrefutable. It's irrefutable. You can deny it. You can argue against it. You can ignore it, or you can despise it. You can belittle it. You can set it aside. You can chalk it up to legend or whatever you want to do, but it is irrefutable. You cannot refute it. It is a historical fact beyond reasonable doubt. If you want to hear more about that, you can grab the handout I put out on the table outside the doors. It recounts those arguments. But I want you to just look at this text for now. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. The tomb was discovered empty. The disciples believed that they saw him, and it changed them from cowards to bold proclaimers of his resurrection. And the entire Christian movement is built on their proclamation of specifically Jesus being alive. Those are irrefutable facts. The tomb was empty. The disciples believed at least that they saw him and were willing to die horrible deaths because they saw him. And all of the Christian movement is founded on that proclamation of Christ's resurrection. You can't refute those. The burden of proof, therefore, is on you, friend, to try to refute the resurrection of Christ as the only possible explanation for those facts that no one can deny. Perfect example from Scripture, I think, that's almost more than any of the other apostles is James, the bold 
little half-brother of Jesus. Do you remember Jesus' family's response to Jesus and his claims? If you read the Gospels closely, you know that they thought he was crazy. They come and they actually try to pull him away from his ministry saying he's out of his mind. And his brothers deride him saying, hey, if you're really the Christ, why don't you go up to Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths and reveal yourself to a people? No prophet hides. You should go show yourself. Knowing that the, the, the Romans and the Jews didn't like him, so they're almost saying, go and get yourself killed, Jesus. When we read 1 Corinthians 15, we see it's a, it's a little blip. He appeared to the eleven and to Cephas, and to James. And so James, who would have had everything to lose by associating himself with his older crazy brother, he would have been put out of the synagogue and hunted and killed for reassociating himself with his brother. Something happened that changed him from a reviler of his older brother to leader of the church in Jerusalem. You can't explain that any other way. And the reason is because Jesus is the Son of God. They actually did bring him to the point, killing him. Push him off the temple pinnacle. This is early history. Saying, you must renounce Jesus. He says, no, Jesus is the Son of God. It's irrefutable, friend. The burden of proof rests with you. What we are dealing with, friends, is not a lack of proof, but the problem of human unbelief. When Paul is talking about the sin of our first parents, he he says, Adam wasn't deceived. So what you have in our first father, from whom we inherit a lot of stuff, including our disposition towards sin, is knowing the truth and saying no. He wasn't deceived. Neither Eve nor the serpent tricked him. He knew the truth. And he decided to disobey. That's the problem of human unbelief that we're dealing with. This is how Jesus speaks about it in Luke chapter 16. In the parable of Abraham and the rich man and Lazarus, The rich man is crying out, Father Abraham, send Lazarus back to warn my brothers not to come to this place. And Abraham says to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is Jesus himself speaking of it, knowing that this would actually take place, even with his apostles. In Matthew 28, 17, right as Jesus is about to be taken back up into heaven, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. They all knew he had died, and they're looking at him, living and breathing before him, and some are doubting, saying, I don't know, we're dealing with a deeper problem than just a lack of proof. If you saw him yourself, that principle at work in your heart and mind makes us assert our own desires against the knowledge of God. Our sinful desires and our flesh and our lusts don't want the resurrection to be true. So I could trot out before you all the evidence that I could find, and it would be substantial. But if you persist in unrepentance, you will not believe. 
The good news is that if you will repent, the Spirit Himself will so weaken and defeat that anti-God principle in your heart and mind that you can, in fact, finally believe what is beyond reasonable doubt regarding the life, death, burial, and resurrection and reign of Christ. But more than irrefutable, the burden that Paul feels, actually, is to spend more time speaking of its inevitability. This is verses 23 through 37. And we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has now fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And of this fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to see corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep. Bible speak for he died. And he was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. His body rotted. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So what Paul is saying to the people, it's one thing to say it's inevitable and look at historical proofs, but it's another thing to see that God had promised all these things. Therefore, it is inevitable that Christ was raised from the dead. He wants us to feel that, that there's no other possible way that history could unfold. His point is not mainly that it did happen. That is quite obvious to him. His point is that it had to happen. This is why David is mentioned as the central figure in the earlier verses. David saw close to 1,000 years before the coming of Christ that it was going to happen. And it's reflected in what the angels and what Jesus himself said from Luke 24. We read this earlier. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? The sense of their question is, Why are you even here? What are you doing? Why are you looking for a live person in, in a cemetery? And this is what Jesus himself says to his apostles, as some of his followers, as he's going to Emmaus. He's hiding himself from them, preventing them from recognizing him so that he can rebuke them from the scriptures. He says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. There is no other way. Jesus would be delivered up for our trespasses, become a curse for us, die for the sins of the people, and be raised for our justification, for the glory of God and the joy of all those who would receive his grace forever. Or the universe itself would be undone and God would be a liar. It was inevitable. 
So within this good news comes a summons, a response, if you will. Verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And that by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is a summons. The good news itself is not merely news. When you listen to a news blurb or you turn on your TV set to listen to news or your radio, you can take it or leave it. Depends on who it comes from, whether I'll take it or leave it. But this good news comes with a summons. It's like a storm warning of the worst kind of storm imaginable and an announcement in the warning of the storm of where you can go for shelter. You can decide to take it or leave it, but there will be disastrous consequences. You will be taken away by the storm. The good news is there's a place to hide. There's a place to find refuge in the coming storm. It comes with a summons to repent. Because... What we need so deeply, we cannot manufacture ourselves. We need forgiveness. And you can't forgive yourself in the ways that you ultimately need to be forgiven. We're helpless and hopeless on our own. The reason why we are hopeless and helpless on our own is because God is holy and actions matter. He will by no means clear the guilty. So what the tax collector cries out in the story I've already alluded to is literally translated, be propitious to me, a sinner. And what he means is, avert your wrath from me. I recognize that I deserve your wrath and I need forgiveness. I need you to do something, holy God, to avert your wrath from me. The holy God, the only one who has the right to judge you, has judged you. And the verdict, friends, is guilty. He who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In Adam, our first father, all die and all are condemned because all sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The verdict is guilty for you and me outside of Christ. So it is a wonder and a mystery that this God, the only one who can judge you and has judged you with the guilty verdict, is the very same one who created you and ordained this very situation that you find yourself under the impending doom of his wrath in order to offer you freedom and forgiveness. He situated it exactly like it is so that he himself would be your only hope. And it cost him the life of his son. It's not arbitrary for him to provide this way of salvation. It's not cheap. It's not some cosmic trick. 
his son had to die. And how great the pain of searing loss. You and I, rebels as we are, guilty as we are, it is God's purpose to make us the trophies of His grace, that we would be the objects of His love forever. And then he makes allusion to this. What the law could not do, you are freed from everything that the law of Moses cannot free you from. Christianity is not do this and don't do this. It is Jesus has done it for you, so trust Him. The basis of holiness then is gratitude and joy in what He has already done. And some of you might have been trying for years and decades to just do it the wrong way. You're doing it the opposite way around. Be a good person. Your motivation is kind of a quid pro quo. I'll do good things to people so that they'll do good to me. What goes around comes around. Maybe if I just live a good life, that if it turns out to be true, that God will let me in. But no, the verdict for all of us is already guilty. And the law, living right, good morals, can't change that. Only forgiveness and freedom in Christ can change that. The law cannot liberate you. Moses cannot help you. Only Christ and His freedom and forgiveness. Because when you trust in God's own ability to free you, then God places His own glory and the fame of His Son at stake in the context of your salvation. The one who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the point. His glory is now uh, essentially wagered in the process of your salvation that for you to fail to be saved, to fail to be forgiven, to be judged guilty, if you're crying out in trust in Jesus... He can't let you perish because he would lose glory. It would defame the glory of his son that this one cried out to Christ for salvation, but didn't end so well for him or her. That's the point. God will get glory in your salvation because he has put his own glory at stake in you making it home safely and escaping his wrath. So what is the response? We've seen the summons to this message of salvation. How do the people respond? The first thing I want you to see is that rejection is costly. Verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So he's warning them to not turn away from this, to not reject the message of salvation. And we see, if you skip down a few verses, that it it actually goes badly for those who reject. If you begin with rejection, that rejection compounds itself. A person who responds negatively to the gospel and insists on remaining negative towards the gospel, it only increases. Look at how it happens. As they went out, the people begged that these things be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, 
as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Rejection is costly. Rejecting this message of salvation that you need grace, you need forgiveness, and God has provided it, richly supplied it in the person of Jesus. Rejection leads to jealousy, reviling, and judging yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Don't do that. If you're hearing the message of Christ's offer of forgiveness and freedom today, clearly do not reject it. You will become more of that every time you reject it. It's as you dig yourself further into the hole of rejection. Please don't. But also we see that belief is priceless. Look at verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So belief is priceless. It's precious. The result of belief is light, salvation, joy, and eternal life. You become more of what you decide to do in response to the gospel. If you reject, you become more of that. If you embrace and believe it and, and welcome in God's offer of salvation, forgiveness, and freedom, you become more of that. It, it abounds to life, salvation, joy, and eternal life. Just as Jesus says to the woman at the well, if you drink of the water that I give, it will become in you a fountain springing forth to eternal life. It, it, it's not just a status for you being forgiven and freed. It becomes more of freedom and forgiveness and life in Him. And we see that the good fruit and the bad fruit multiply. Look at verse 50. So as this uh, light and salvation and joy and eternal life is happening in the Gentiles who respond positively to the gospel. Look at what happens in verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and went to Iconium. The bitter fruit of rejection multiplies. But... The good fruit of belief multiplies as well. Verse 52. And the disciples, meaning those who followed Jesus, who believed in the message of salvation, of forgiveness and freedom, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Friends, don't roll the dice today with your life. Don't roll the dice with your eternal state. Are you just crossing your fingers, hoping that none of this is true? Believer, are you living your life today as if this really happened? 
Is your life evidence of the resurrection like it was for the apostles and for James and for Paul? If someone looked at your life, would they be able to say, it's clear they had an encounter with the resurrected Son of God because you can't explain his or her life any other way? Realize that how you respond to this message every time you hear it compounds and multiplies and builds and you become more of that, whatever it is, on and on and even into eternity. Believer or not, repentance is your first step. You can begin today by forsaking sin. If you've never believed at all, realize that the thing that prevents you from believing is not a lack of proof or evidence or good arguments. It is a love of your life without God. But it's going to be over at some point, and you don't know when. And the only person who has ever claimed to be able to help you with your death problem and proved that he can help you with your death problem by overcoming death himself is Jesus. And if you have believed, maybe even for a very long time, repentance is also your starting point as well today. This has not been given to you so that you can go home and contemplate a nice Easter message. This is a summons. The news comes with a summons. You must live a certain way in accordance with the resurrection as if it's really true, because it is. This news demands a response from you too. This is how John in his epistle says it. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when He appears we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes purifies himself as he is pure. If his return, the hope that the resurrection gives you, proof that he's able to do everything he said he would do, is your hope and trust, then you will live a life of purity and holiness in expectation for that great and final day. The resurrection of Christ puts us all on notice that any manner of life, any form of church, any type of interaction, any hierarchy of dreams, of goals, retirement plans, whatever it is that are not conformed to the universe-defining reality of His saving work on the cross and His resurrection have no place in the world. And they have no place in the new heavens and the new earth. He died so that we might live for Him. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, may we abound in grace and joy of the Holy Spirit. I pray that this news, this inevitable event of your Son conquering death would sink deep into our hearts and that we would be radically changed. Because we believe that when we see him, we shall be fully changed. I pray that if there is anyone who needs to repent this day, believing or not, 
that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would repent of their rejection and their love of life without you and embrace the forgiveness and freedom available in your son, Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.